Brad Hennick. Thank you, Marty. Fellow students, I use that word uh, advisedly, but at the same time, you will be a student if you stay with us, right? Okay, the book of Revelation. We're going to spend however much time we need to spend to get through it. So there's no really end point here. Uh, the book of Revelation, as you know, is the last book in God's divine library, is his last word to humanity, without a doubt, is the scariest book in the entire biblical canon. If you read this thing and you're not both thrilled and terrified, you don't understand the nature of what you're reading. Uh, it contains plagues and earthquakes and demonic activity and wars and stellar and planetary disturbances. And here's what's really interesting. All of the things that happen in Revelation are completely and 100% out of our control. Aren't you grateful? Yeah. Oh, it's a good thing that God is completely in charge. And when you read this book, you understand who's in control and it's not us. Dr. Earl Palmer once said, Revelation is hard to understand, but impossible to forget, which I thought was pretty good. It's been well said that Genesis, the book of Genesis and Revelation are really bookends of the Bible. One opens and one closes. Everything that begins in Genesis, by the way, ends in Revelation. What was interrupted in Genesis 3 is renewed. In Genesis 19 to 22, Genesis is the commencement of creation. <laughs> Revelation is the consummation of all creation. Genesis begins in a garden paradise, and Revelation reveals an eternal garden paradise where we spend eternity. Genesis reveals the entrance of sin and the curse, and Revelation reveals, the, of course, the end of sin and the curse. Uh, Genesis records the dawn of <laughs> Satan and the dawn of Satan's activities, and Revelation records the doom of Satan and his activities. Uh, in Genesis, you have the tree of life, remember? That was relinquished. In Revelation, you have the tree of life regained. Uh, in Genesis, death enters. In Revelation, death exits. No more death, which is completely new to us. Sorrow begins in Genesis, and it's banished in Revelation. Uh, in Genesis, paradise is lost, and in Revelation, paradise is regained. The key, the key of all of it, though, is this. In Genesis, the Savior is promised, and in Revelation, the Savior is preeminent. Here's the key idea. I have it on the board behind me. Revelation reveals many, many things about the future, about life, about us, about the planet, etc. But first and foremost, Revelation is all about revealing Jesus Christ, right? Many, 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 many biblical themes come into play and final focus in the book of Revelation. This is one of the reasons why this is a, it's a major mistake that you read Revelation first. It should not be the first book you read after you become a Christian. It should be the last book you read. All, all the biblical themes that flow throughout all 66 books or 65 books in the Bible come to their fruition in Genesis. I mean, I'm sorry, in Revelation. They begin in Genesis and come to fruition in Revelation. If you start with Revelation, you're going to be reading a code book. And when you read all 65 books before then, you're given the code. You will begin to understand a lot better. You want to see the book in proper perspective. Here's the principle, and you really need to remember this for all biblical interpretation, but especially, especially, especially Revelation. Here's the principle. The cardinal rule of biblical interpretation is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. What that means is the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. It's the rest of the Bible, right? There is no greater authority on the Bible than the Bible itself. And that's one of the reasons why I get more gray hair when I hear people say, well, here's what I think it means. You know something? Human opinion is relatively worthless when it comes to discerning what God says, right? I know that's tough on the ego. Well, I think it means this. Well, I think it means that. Really, with all due respect, we're not too focused or concerned with what our opinion is, right? We want to know what God intended to say. That's what we're all about. Here's a word picture. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, wrote this, and I thought it was great. He says, picture the Bible, the all 66 books, as a giant pyramid. You got that in your mind? The pyramid of Gaza, a giant, giant pyramid. You got that picture? How many verses are there in the Bible? A lot, Brad. There's a lot. Yeah, okay. 
that would be true. There's 31,101 verses. So this giant pyramid contains 31,101 verses, the entire scripture. The particular verse that you're studying right now is the very top of the pyramid. The tip top of the pyramid contains the verse that you're studying, right? These three verses we're going to study today, very top of the pyramid. If you want to understand those three verses, you turn the pyramid upside down. And you bring all 31,000 verses to bear on that one point. Another word picture is the, the word of God becomes the prism. That giant pyramid becomes the prism through which you view those one or two or three verses that you're looking at. Does that make sense? Does that help understand? You bring the weight of the pyramid to bear on that one verse because you want to understand what those 31,000 verses say about those three verses or the one verse you're studying or and or it's the prism by which you gain clarity on what the Bible has to say about that particular verse. There's probably been more ink spilled in writing commentaries on this book than any other book of the Bible. And there's also been probably more foolishness and fantasy and human opinion and sensationalism written about this book than almost anything else. So it's extraordinarily important when you read this book, keep your finger pretty close to the page. You know what I mean when I say that? What does God say, not what I think? We want to know what he says at that point in time. God intends this book to be read and studied and understood and obeyed just like the rest of the Bible. Revelation 22.10 said, God's talking to John, and he says, Do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Right? He wants this book to be known, and yet our experience has been, my experience has been, this book is probably the least studied book of all the books in the Bible. I grew up as a kid, and I never heard one sermon on this book ever, let alone a series. We just, it, we just didn't open at that Why point do you in time. Think that is? We'll get there. There's lots and lots of reasons. There's lots and lots of reasons. I'm going to get, yeah, yeah, next step. You said it right there, Ethel. It's also the only book in Scripture that promises a specific blessing to those who read it and hear it. And you, if you look at verse 3, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Most people won't read the book, um, but they're missing a blessing if they don't. Okay. The authorship of this is John uh, the Apostle. Stated four times in the book, he claims to be the apostle of the book. The early church fathers, from the early church fathers on, there's not been a lot of argument that John uh, was the apostle who wrote the book. The date of the book, a fair amount of controversy on that. Uh, we'll get next couple of weeks into how you interpret this book. But um, most conservative scholars would say that it was written 95, 96 AD. So uh, end of the very first century. Early church history records that the Apostle John wrote this book when he was exiled on the island of Patmos, which you can see in verse 9. If you go to verse 9 right now, John himself says that he was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The Roman Empire at the time was Flavius or Titus Flavius Domitian at that point in time, and he demanded to be worshipped as God. I mean, he wrote an edict. You will worship me as Lord and God. Christians, of course, refused to do that, and so persecution really began to take off at that point in time, and John was banished um, by Domitian for faithfully preaching the gospel at Ephesus. He had been at Ephesus for a number of years. Remember now, John was probably, I was talking to Chris before, Dave rather, John was probably, what did we say, 1819, something like that, when Christ was raised from the dead. So when John was called to be an apostle, he was probably a teenager. Right? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were fairly young people. They were, you, you have children that are older than they were when they were following Jesus. Jesus was 30 years old at the inauguration of his ministry. That's when Levites could become priests. So 30 years old is good age. We know that was a fact. But we often think that these folks were his contemporaries. Most of his disciples were probably at least 10 years younger. At least. So he was probably a teenager. And he, John had likely not, had, not yet had his 20th birthday at the resurrection. Probably a late teenager at that point. So in 95 AD, you know, he's probably in his 80s. 
He's an old man at this point in time. And if you think that's old, I mean, today 80 is old. 80 back then was really old. Not a lot of teeth at that point in time. So he was on the island of Patmos. Patmos is a very, very small island. It's four miles wide and six miles long. And you could walk around that, right, in a relatively short period of time. Unfortunately for John, it was a penal colony. It's where Rome put prisoners. And they maintained, you know, mines uh, and uh, quarries. So you had a free labor force. You need rock and you need stuff out of coal or whatever your mine at that point in time. You have a penal colony, you put laborers on there, and so you got free labor to get the stuff out of there. But uh, Domitian, the emperor, was assassinated in uh, September 18th, uh, 96, by members of his own court, right? One of the dangers of being an emperor is some people in court don't like you. So when he was assassinated, John was freed. He was now able to go back to Ephesus, which he did for about four years. He wrote this book in 95, 96. He died around A.D. 100. So he was very likely at that stage of the game, probably 85, 86, 87, somewhere in that neck of the woods, uh, you know, aged man at that point in time. Okay, let's jump into verse 1. I'm going to unpack this for you. There are 404 verses in Revelation. We're going to do the first three today. I promise you we will not go this slow every week. We'll, otherwise, we'll be here until Jesus comes back. Um, so, but we're going to try and I'll, I'll take larger chunks of it as we go. But... Um, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God, and I need you to get your pen out, this is going to be important, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. So let's, let's, let's unpack this. It says the what? The revelation. The nature of this book is revelation. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. It means to unveil. It means to disclose. It means to reveal. The word is used 18 times in the New Testament. It literally translates apocalypsis to take the cover off. To take the cover off so you can see what's inside, right? To disclose, to reveal. It means that truth which has been concealed is now going to be revealed and the mystery which was obscure is now going to be made clear at that point in time. When this word revelation applies to a person, it means that they're made visible. They're made visible. In Luke 2, remember when, um, when Simeon blesses the baby Jesus in the temple? Right, the aged man, he, he lays a blessing on Jesus. And he says, my eyes have seen thy salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. That word, a light of revelation, is the same word apocalypse. You know, apocalypsis is the Greek. We use the word apocalypse. Now, when we think of apocalypse today, we don't think of, oh, it's a mystery revealed. We think it's a catastrophe, right? When we say the word apocalypse today, we think, you know, disaster. That's not the original meaning, but that's kind of how we've gotten it now. So it literally means an unveiling. And of course, uh, in this case, it meant the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, making him visible. This book of Revelation reveals, makes visible, unveils, makes clear Jesus Christ. Back to our key idea. Revelation reveals many things, but first and foremost, it reveals Jesus Christ. So it says the revelation of... Jesus Christ, right? The theme of the book is Christ. Now, stay with me on this one. It's true that the book of Revelation is from Jesus in the sense that Jesus is God incarnate, right? But in here, the primary meaning is that this revelation is about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one being unveiled. unveiled. Remember, the Gospels already gave us a picture of Jesus, right? Did they make him visible? in human form, when he was here in flesh, and they revealed him as a suffering servant. They revealed him his first coming in humiliation. Revelation reveals Christ as his second coming, and he's coming as the king. First he came as the servant in the Gospels. Now he comes as the king at the end of time in exaltation. The first time he came to planet Earth, he was, his deity, his godhood, was, was veiled in his humanity, right, in his flesh. He was born of a woman in a stable. He got hungry. He was trained as a stonemason. He suffered when he was tortured. He bled when he was pierced. He died, right? So very human the first time. 
we only catch a glimpse of his glory at the transfiguration, right? It's the only time you really see Jesus in the Gospels as who he is, right? Here, you only see him as the king. You will not see him as a man. You will see him as God. You'll see his deity uncovered. He holds the title deed to the universe in this book. Now, I got to say, when I'm studying these first three verses, I've read Revelation a number of times. I missed about 80% of what I'm going to tell you until I put some time into it. It's so easy to read three verses and go, yeah, I got it. No problem. Uh, there's a whole lot there that I didn't know was there until, you know, until you put a little elbow grease into it. So the source of this book is who? The source of the book is? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, just make sure. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. By the way, what does your Bible say at the very top title page? The revelation? To John. Yeah, it's not the revelation of John. It's not about John. John's the scribe, right? So, but it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, right? So the source of the book is God, God the Father. John's the scribe that wrote it down. What I didn't catch is the obvious. Who did God give the revelation to? To him. Jeff had just mentioned something. Say it really loud. What do you notice about him? It's capitalized. Nothing in Scripture is capitalized unless it includes deity. So Jesus, God gave the revelation to somebody named him who was, who was also God. Okay, he gave it to his son. He gave it to his son, Jesus. This revelation is sourced in God the Father, given to God the Son. And then I think, why would God give this revelation to his son, Jesus? Right? Well, it's interesting. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, remember, humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death on the cross. Therefore, God what? Highly exalted him, gave him a name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus what? Every knee's going to bow, every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. Because Jesus, the Son, was obedient in humbling himself before his Father, God made a promise that he was going to exalt Jesus above anything and everything. This book of Revelation is the disclosure. It's the script for that exaltation, right? It's the record that Jesus will be glorified. John MacArthur, I'm, I'm using a little bit of his outline here, which I really appreciate. He's noted his, his, his reference on this is like, this is like a father saying to a son, because you have been my faithful and obedient son and have done everything I've asked of you, I'm going to give you my inheritance, 100% of my estate is going to you. This book reveals all the assets, right? And it's all written down. It's all yours now. Because you were faithful to me in your humiliation, I will be faithful to exalt and glorify you. So the book of Revelation is sourced in God the Father, gifted to Jesus the Son. This book reveals the glorification of the Son. Now, what does Jesus do with a revelation when he gets it? What's the next phrase? <clears throat> it says he's going to show it to his bondservants, right? Who's his bondservants? Us. Believers, right? By the way, bondservants means slave. I know you were struggling with that for a reason, right? <laughs> I ain't no slave to nobody. Yeah, you are. Okay, here's the principle. Christians choose to be slaves of Jesus out of love, not compulsion. Revelation is a book that Jesus will show to his bondservant. By the way, this book was not written primarily for us as believers. This book was written primarily for Jesus. Jesus shows it to us who follow him. The word bondservant in Greek is doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S. Now, a doulos is a unique kind of a slave. A doulos is a slave that doesn't serve out of compulsion, fear, or force. They serve by choice. They serve because they want to serve. They're willing slaves. They're devoted to their master. They love their master, and they choose to serve out of love. So should we be, right? 
When's the last time someone called you a love slave? I don't even want to go there, Rob. We all are love slaves. The problem becomes it's easy to say. And then Jesus sometimes says, let's find out if you really mean that. You know something? Serving Jesus is no problem. I have no problem being a love slave to Jesus. It's the people he wants me to serve that make me crazy. Right? Because it's no problem saying, serving Jesus, oh, Jesus is a good master, but this schmuck over here that I'm supposed to serve right now, who treats me like a slave, yeah, I mean, I don't even mind being a slave, but it really, really bothers me when you treat me like one. Yeah, well, Jesus did what? Humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. That's the worst kind of humiliation. Paula. That, what you just said, totally ties into what Pastor said in church today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> I am the king of the self-righteous judges, so you can put that crown on me. I can be so self-righteous I can't stand myself. That's got to be pretty bad. Okay, <clears throat> Jesus is going to reveal to his bondservants content. And the content is what? The things which must soon take place. So by definition, the character of this book is prophetic. This book reveals the future and it's unique in the New Testament. See, the Gospels record what? The past. What Jesus did, how he was born, how he lived, the miracles, how he died, how he rose. So that's all past. Acts of the Apostles talks about what the disciples did from the ascension of Jesus to the death of Paul. History, right? They tell us the history. The epistles, the rest of the Old Testament, tell you how you live in light of the truth that Jesus brought when he came. This book is unique in that it's chapter 4 to 22 is almost all future. Now, I've tipped my hand here. The next three or four weeks, I'm going to walk you through the various ways you can interpret Revelation. Some of us have come from a wide variety of backgrounds with respect to how we view this book, right? There's a school of thought, the preterist model, that says all of this book occurred before AD 70. There's a historical model that says this book records the history of the church from zero Christ's ascension to the present time, and you can see all sorts of history in this book. The idealist model says this thing's all symbolic. It's the great themes of good versus evil, has no bearing in history, and no concrete future uh, revealing. The futurist model, the fourth model, says from chapter 4 to 22 hasn't happened yet. I'm going to walk you through those various schools of thought because there are very wise people who subscribe to all of these, okay, just so you know. And I'm going to put my cards in the table right now. I'll just tell you up front. We're going to approach this as chapter 4 to 22 has not yet occurred. We're viewing this book as largely prophetic, but I'm going to come back to the four schools of thought from time to time because I grew up in a model that says this whole thing was symbolic. And it was kind of whatever you wanted it to be. You know, if you woke up today and you had too many chili rellenos last night, then the, that was this and that was that. It was very, very fuzzy. When you read scripture, we very much believe that you should approach it with the assumption that God means what he says and says what he means. Amen? So we're going to look at this with the assumption that God has no problem communicating with his creation. That's us. And he writes down in comprehensive language what he wants to communicate. Now, I know there's a lot of symbols in this book. If you read the other 65 books, before you get here, most of the symbols will make sense. So we're going to talk a lot about that. So we're assuming that most of this book is about the future. If you want the outline of the entire book, go to verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. Here's the outline of the entire book. John's commanded to write the things which, number one, you have seen. Underline that. You have seen. That's the past. So chapter one is what you have seen. Chapter one is the past. He says, not only that, I want you to write about the things which are. That's the present. The present is chapter two and three. 
So chapter 1's the past, chapter 2's the present, and then he says, write about the things which shall take place after these things. That's the future. That's the majority of the book, which is chapter 4 to 22. So chapter 1 is the past, chapter 2 to 3 is the present, and 4 to 22 is the future, and God tells him, I want you to write accurately what I reveal to you about the past, present, and future. Now, everybody wants to know the future. However, the future is non-knowable because we live in linear time, which means you can look back, but you can't go back. But you can't go forward. I mean, you can only go forward, but you can't look forward, right? So we live in linear time where past, present, and future is a box we have to live in. God dwells outside time. So God has 100% control over the future, and he's revealing to us the things which shall be. And he says in chapter 1, verse 1, he says the things which soon must take place, or shortly must take place. Now the Greek word for soon or shortly is tekeos. You know what, what, what tekeos is in English? It's tachometer. What do you do with a tachometer? You put it on your wheels and measure your RPM, how fast the engine is spinning. So tekeos is a Greek word that measures the velocity of something. We call it a, a tachometer because it measures how fast our engines are turning in our cars. So one definition of this word soon or shortly it can mean these, when these future prophecies begin to occur, they really occur suddenly. They really occur quickly when they start. As a matter of fact, chapter 4 to 22, chapter 4 to 19 rather, takes place in seven years. Seven years. The bulk of this book takes place in seven years. As a matter of fact, most of the book takes place in three and a half years. The second half of that seven-year period at that point. So... The word tekeo says when it starts, it's going to happen quick. That's one look at that. Very brief period of time or suddenly. The second meaning of the word soon, when he says these things are soon going to take place, doesn't have to do with the velocity of the events. It has to do with the proximity of the events. It has to do with the nearness of the events. So it's not speed, but it's nearness as in closeness. When Jesus said, Behold, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming soon, I'm coming shortly, he means it's imminent, right? It's the next thing on the calendar is going to happen. As a matter of fact, the doctrine of biblical imminence says the very next thing on God's calendar is the return of Christ. The very next thing on his calendar. Now understand, God's calendar is not your calendar. See, we want it to happen by dinner. I mean, if you're going to come, let's get with it. Why are you delaying, right? I want to get out of here. Here's the principle. Since today could be the day, we need to live every day as if it were our last day. And someday it will be. Right? Yeah, I, I wrote that out and then I thought, you know, the Holy Spirit's pretty faithful. Sometimes he goes, that's not done yet. And I put, someday it will be. Yeah, okay, so. Someday will be your last day. So live every day in the, in the light of that reality. So the application of this for us, if Jesus could come back shortly, anytime, is to be ready. Luke 12, 36 says, Be like men who are waiting for their master and who returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves, that's us, you and I are slaves, don't forget it, whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. You too be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. So this command to be on the alert, to be on the alert, to pay attention, to be spiritually awake is seen throughout the, the New Testament throughout the New Testament. He said he will return when people are what? Not expecting him to return. So anytime someone says, I know when it's going to happen, and man, I got a date on it, I, I, what I can tell you is I guarantee you it will not happen on that date. Right? <laughs> it's going to come when they don't expect him. Most American Christians do not expect Jesus to come back soon. You know how I know that? They're not here. They're at the lake. Or they're doing something else, right? 
They're not serving God. They're, they're not, they, I mean, they say, oh, God, yeah, you, you know, you're my bud. God says, well, you haven't checked in with me in three years. So, you know, my friends talk to me every day and you come only when you're in a crisis. Let's check our relationship, son. As pastor said, if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. We should be able to see the fruit if you claim there's a root. <laughs> and you know what I do with trees in my yard where there's no fruit? They get dug up and burned up. Although, Marin said to me, how come there's no apricots and no peaches and no nectarines? We have trees that they only blossom every other year. Not too pleased with that, but, you know, we get fruit every other year. And we get a bumper crop every other year, kind of making up for lost time. <laughs> so, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants, that's you and me, the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel. So the delivery of this message is angelic. Now, communicated here is a word that means make known, and the Greek word for that translates signified. Signified. Signified means to symbolize. It means to represent, to proclaim by means of a symbol. You know, one of the ways we could look at that instead of signified, we could say signified. This is a sign, it's a communication by means of signs or symbols, right? Revelation, if we'll get into it here in the next several months, is filled with symbols. Filled with symbols. A symbol is a way of communicating something that you cannot draw a picture of or easily describe in words. Pastor Ray Stedman describes a boy back in the day trying to explain what a radio was like to his younger brother. And the older brother said to the younger brother, you know that a telegraph, this is back in the day, was a long line that runs between two cities. It's like having a big dog with his tail in Los Angeles and his head in San Francisco. When you step on his tail in LA, he barks in San Francisco. <laughs> now radio is the same thing, only you don't got no dog, right? He's trying to explain by means of a symbol, a sign, what a radio is like at that point in time. So symbols help us to understand meanings as long as you understand what the symbol represents. There's been an enormous amount of difference of opinion about what some of these symbols mean. So we're going to talk about that a whole lot in the next few months at that point. As we mentioned before, almost all the symbols in Revelation have already been given us in Scripture at large at that point. So if you read the other 65 books first, you'll have a chunk of it already done. He said this communication or this message was sent and communicated by his angel. So an angel is the, is the delivery mechanism. At the end of Revelation in chapter 22, 16, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. Now, the word sent is apostolos, apostolos. And we get our word apostle from this, apostle. An apostle means what? Do anybody know? Uh, someone who lived with Christ. Yep. But what does it mean? It means one who is sent with a message. It's an authorized representative of a sender who has an authorized message. It's a sent one. So the, the sent one here is who? It's an angel, right? The sent one, the delivery mechanism is an angel. This is the only book in the New Testament that was delivered and transmitted by an angel. The only one. As a matter of fact, when you read this book, you will find that angels are everywhere. You'll see angels in this book more than any other book in the Bible by far. Matter of fact, 17 out of 22 chapters mention angels. There are, there are 67 separate mentions of angels in this book, right? 67 times you'll see angels. And it says it's communicated by an angel to who? John. To John. Who's John? It says, yeah, the, the, he's the revelator, but he's, he's the bondservant, right? John is the one who authored the Gospel of John, as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You're going to see throughout this book, John is blown away that God would entrust this to him. 
He's stunned. He says, I, John, saw this. He can't believe that God would entrust this to him. It's the end of history, and it's the culmination of God's dealing with the human race. Okay, verse 2. John, the bondservant, who testified to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, even all that he saw. Now, testify means to bear witness. John is a witness. He gives evidence like a witness in a court of law. Have any of you ever been called to be a witness in a court of law? Yeah, I have too. Really fun gig, I'll tell you. That was a divorce case. Nothing beats family law for seeing human behavior at its finest, right? A witness is anyone who's had a personal experience, someone who saw something, heard something, can verify that, and then they tell what they know in a court of law, and they're required to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? So John's an eyewitness because he lived with Jesus for how long? Three years, right? You remember? Three-year ministry at that point. Saw the resurrection, saw the ascension, and he faithfully wrote it down in the gospel and the epistles. So now, God's going to give John this revelation, and John's going to record this, right? And write it down for us. He's a faithful witness, just like we should be. Verse 3. Here's the promise of blessing. Blessed is he who reads, underline the word reads, and those who hear, underline the word hear, the words of this prophecy, here's the big banana, and heed, underline the word heed, the things that are written in this book, and then he tells you why you should read, hear, and heed, and what's the reason he gives you? The time is near. The time is short. Your tachometer is racing. Kronos is going by in a hurry time. So the outcome of this book is a spiritual blessing. Blessing generally means to be endowed with divine protection and favor, to receive a divine reward, and revelation is filled with promise of blessing. Did you know that the word blessing, we get the word beatitude from? There are, interestingly enough, seven beatitudes in Revelation. Seven times you get promised blessing. By the way, we're going to get into numbers, and seven is throughout this book. It's just shot through seven. Chapter 1, we get a promise, blessed is the one who reads. Chapter 14, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Chapter 16, blessed is he who stays awake. Need more caffeine? Get caffeine, but stay awake. Verse 19, blessed are those who invited the wedding supper of the Lamb, and actually, you know, be there for that. Verse 20, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy. So blessing is throughout this book. Now, in verse 3, the word blessing is a different Greek construction. In verse 3, the Greek word is esher, E-S-H-E-R, and it means to guide, to guide, to navigate, to show the way at that point. So the blessing in verse 3 is a promise of divine navigation, of a spiritual GPS that unfailingly takes you to the right destination. Here's the principle. God promises divine guidance to those who read, hear, and obey His Word. Now, most of the reading that was done in that era was public reading. By the way, this is a circular letter. We're going to find out next week. It was supposed to go to seven churches, right? So you would get the letter, and you would read it. If we got a letter from the Apostle John, for instance, and you were here in the assembly, I would say we got a letter from our missionary brother John, and I'd read the letter. So there's a reading of the word, and then there's those who hear, right? Escuche. And then there's a few of those who hear that actually heed. Did you know that most people that hear don't heed? That would be your children, right? Of course. No, not your children. But my grandchildren always do what grandpa and grandma say, right? I can hear you now. This is all good. So God says, look, if you will pay attention when you read here and obey what I tell you, I will give you divine guidance through this mess we call the world today, right? So the blessing of guidance is conditional on three things, and there's three verbs. And it means continuous action. So it's not read, hear, and obey once. It says keep reading, keep hearing, keep obeying the words of this prophecy. 
the next few weeks we're going to get into chapters 2 and 3. And Jesus is talking to the seven churches and over and over he says a particular phrase to all seven churches without exception. He repeats the same phrase seven times. What is it? It has to do with ears. Tom, say it loud. He who has an ear, most of you have two. You have no excuse not to hear, right? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, almost everyone has physical ears, right? By the way, we hear the, the sounds of this culture pretty clearly. Would you say the culture is pretty good at communicating with you? I just read, and I'm stunned by this, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised. I just read that most millennials get their news virtually 100% from social media. So what someone else thinks about someone else heard from so-and-so's opinion. What's the likelihood we're going to have an accurate... Remember, when you were a kid, did you ever play Whisper Around the World? You know, you start on one end, and by the time 20 people tell the phrase, it's like... You're a pervert. I mean, you know, by the time you hear it, it comes around, you go, ah, nah, ah, that's weird. Because it gets lost in transmission. That's one of my great curses. I think news has got lots of distortion now. But if it goes through six levels of social media, by the time I get it, I have no clue what rat actually is. I know what a lot of people's opinions on are about it, but I don't know what actually is at that point in time. So we go straight to the source. Straight to the source. There are many people that read, but few people read the Bible seeking God's opinion on the news. Did you know that God has an opinion about the news today? He's got an opinion about the news today, and he's already written it down. You can find out what he's got to say about it. You don't have to read some commentator to understand it. It's already written down by the God who knows all things. So many people, all of us have physical ears. Most of us have ears to hear the culture. Very few people have spiritual ears to hear what God is saying. Because when it says listen in Scripture, always means listening with an intent to obey. Listening with an intent to obey. I used to pretend to listen to my mother. Uh, uh, yeah, yep. I could even look and nod, yep, yep. You know something? I had absolutely no intention of doing what she said. Yeah, and then I'd get busted and whacked, and then I would say, okay, I guess I better obey now, right? Marin, on the other hand, was, did what she was told, saved herself a lot of grief. I needed to learn by scar tissue, stupid, whatever. Yeah, the hard way, that's a good one. But the, but, but the nice thing, when you learn from consequences, you really learn. Some people really learn. <laughs> Maren's looking at me and saying, I can, because we've talked about this, do you know that there are some people that don't seem to learn from consequences? Yeah. It doesn't matter how much pain they experience, they keep going back and back and back. And you say, it's been four marriages. Your picker is broken. You should not be making marriage choices after four, okay? Probably you're not good at this thing. I'm just using an example at that point. Some of us are not good at stuff, really. You know, as Clint Eastwood said, a man's got to know his limitations. Not everybody should engage in stuff. I mean, there's just some stuff you should back up on. But God says, I will give you guidance if you read my guidebook and follow it. Right? We've got the divine guidance available. It's just a question of reading it and then doing what it says. By the way, ignorance is never commended. Ignorance is never commended in Scripture. And it's equally true that you cannot obey what you do not know. And we're commanded to know. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show yourself approved unto God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 By the way, this is the highest education degree of all. You know what it is? It's the AUG degree. What's the AUG degree? It's right here. Approved unto God. That's the highest degree you're ever going to get. Because when you get to heaven, all that matters is His approval. All that matters is His approval. And once again, He says in the blessing, <coughs> Blessed are those of you who read, hear, and heed, for the time is near. Right? He says it again. It's urgent. 
By the way, the time here does not mean chronos time. Chronos is Greek for chronometer. It's clock time. Chronos measures quantity of time. What time is it? It's 1.55. That's chronos time, right? Quantity of time. The word here is kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, like kairos syrup with an I in the middle, kairos. It means seasonal time. It's not a quantity of time description, it's a quality of time description. How many of you ever said, we had a really good time at the concert? We had a great time at the concert. Are they saying, boy, that 155 minutes, man, it was wonderful. They're talking about the quality of their time, right? We had a great time at the concert. We had a great time at the party. It was great. We had a great time talking together. So this is not chronos time in the sense of God never specifically tells you, I'm coming back in 2153 AD. You're never going to see that written here, right? He always says, I'm coming back when? Soon. And you look at that and you say, what does that mean, right? How soon is soon? I mean, this is going to happen next week, next month, thousand years from now. It's the next thing on God's calendar. But he's not going to tell you this specific time. But I can tell you exactly when it's going to happen. When he's ready for it to happen, right? Ecclesiastes 3 tells us there is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. You know, a time to be born, a time to die, etc., etc. So there's a time and a season for everything under heaven. God does not tell us exactly. So Christians, stop using this as a fortune-telling guide. I've read more stupid stuff... God's coming back on this date, and I can put it together from this book. It's ne you're never going to put it together. It's not designed for that purpose, right? God doesn't tell you the exact time, but he tells you he is coming back. Here's an interesting question. If you knew exactly when Jesus was going to return, you knew the day and the hour, how would it impact your decisions? If you did know. You could sin right up to that day. Yeah. That would be one choice. You could basically say, you know, he's not coming back for another 23 years. Let's rock, right? He'll be back in 23 years. So I've literally talked to people who said, I think you can live any way you want and you can make your peace on the way up. How did guy tell me that? I'll make my peace on the way up. I said, you'll make your peace. You think you're going to be in a position to make peace. You don't make peace. Jesus makes peace. It's way too late on the way up, right? Luke 18. Luke 18 tells us the parable of the widow. This widow keeps pestering this judge, and I need justice, and blah, blah, blah. And he doesn't care about her, but he finally he gets so tired of her persistence, he says, I'm going to give her justice, right? And Jesus uses that in an illustration as he said, God is going to bring about justice for his people, that's you, who cry out to him night and day. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them speedily. I know some of you in the room are going saying, it can't happen fast enough, right? I want it now. So if you have Christians that are being like the ones you were talking about earlier that are out at the lake today, and the ones that are talking to him every day, is there going to be a difference then between the people that are are talking to Jesus every day and praying hard every day and, and then the people that are barely saved because they they say they believe that Jesus was the son of God. Here's the here's it's good, Paul is saying is there a difference between the people that have a daily relationship with Jesus and the one that talk to him every three years. The reality is God has children who want to be with him. Yes? God has children who are distant and the relationship is strained, yes, they're still his children. God also knows people who say they're his children and they're not. We talked about that last week. When you put them all in the backyard, they're all playing together. You can't tell who belongs where until it's time to go home for dinner. Then the only ones that go in the house are the children of the homeowner whose backyard it is. The rest of them, you go to your house. And your parents are the devil, so you know where you go. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not a good way to build friends with neighbors, but you know what I mean. Okay, you get the picture at that point in time. 
But interestingly enough, in the last part of verse 8, Jesus says, however, when, this is a question Jesus asks, when the Son of Man comes, he's going to come, will he find faith on the earth? That's a rhetorical question that Jesus said. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on you? You know what that means? It means that Jesus is not coming back on your and my timeline. And many, many people will assume, well, he's not coming back anytime soon, so I can do what I want to do. I can live like the devil and we'll deal with it later. This is our, this is our culture, right? How many people in this culture expect Jesus to come back in their lifetime? Most Christians don't expect Jesus to come back in their lifetime, right? So how do we live? We live casually, right? I mean, if you knew that Jesus was coming back at 6 o'clock tonight, I think this afternoon might look a little different for some of us. I mean, we, we might be doing some different things if we knew Jesus was going to show up at 6 o'clock tonight. But the reality is he may well show up at 6 o'clock tonight. So why aren't we? See, one of the reasons why Jesus never tells us when he's going to come, we're supposed to live in a state of perpetual readiness. Perpetual readiness. We want him to come back. We're waiting for him to come back. He's going to come back when he's ready. Here's an interesting frame of reference. Never forget that planet Earth, planet Earth has a rapidly approaching expiration date. Don't put your treasures here. This joint's going to expire. It's going to happen, right? All right, here's the summary. Revelation reveals many things. First and foremost, it reveals what? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The cardinal rule of biblical interpretation is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Always bring Scripture to bear on Scripture. Verse uh, third, Christians choose to be slaves of Jesus out of love, not compulsion. I've said this a thousand times. If you have problems serving someone, it's because your love muscle is broken down. You will always serve people you love. Always. We serve, we, we want to serve people we love. Someone who doesn't want to serve, it's not the service problem, it's the love problem. Same with Jesus. Since today could be the day, we need to live every day as if it were our last day. And someday it will be. And lastly, God promises the blessing of divine guidance to those who read, hear, and obey his word. Okay, keep reading ahead, folks. I love you a bunch. Next week we'll carry on. I hope to be out of chapter one, but we'll see. Now that you know, do.